Hi everybody, this is Dr. Telly for History 256, and today we're going to be talking about fears, problems, and responses to the changes in American society, 1880s-ish to 1910-ish. Um, the class will get a little bit more chron chronological when we get into the next unit, uh, however for the first third of the class I kind of go more thematic. Now remember, over the past two weeks we talked about the five big changes in American society. Big business, immigration, urbanization, close to the western frontier, and challenges of faith and confidence. And all those things were really big. Those are all characteristics of an emerging society. It's an America in flux. It's an America that's going from the way it once was to the way it kind of is now. It's going from an older America to a modern America. Seems to be the main change here. And with the change comes a lot of fear. There comes some problems. There comes a lot of worry when things start changing. You know, people start to feel more powerless against all these faraway forces from faraway lands they have no control over. There's a lot of fear of disorder. I mean, whenever anything is changing, at any time, maybe even in your own life, change generates fear. And when you have a lot of fear, that can be problematic. Now, there's some, definitely some early responses to all these fears and problems. Some of the first to do it, they're writers and journalists. Some of the first one to really address these social issues. Now, they have a lot of different stances upon this. There's no real one consistent uh, stance that they have. It changes depending on the individual. Uh, a very popular one is some argue that land is the basis of all wealth. And so land speculators seem to be taxed so high, it becomes unprofitable to own land and not do anything with it. And so that they have to sell the land, and then that land can be sold to regular people, allowing farming to come back. Uh, that's fairly common. We talked about that a little bit with the ghost dance. This idea that, hey, we need to go back to what we did before. You know, modern life is so scary, maybe people should go back to farming. Land speculation is a fancy term for just buying land and like holding onto it almost like a stock. You don't necessarily do anything with it, you just hold on to it, hoping that somebody else buys it later from you. Uh, because the United States has so much land, especially federal land out west, this became fairly common for people to get money. In fact, even before this time period, uh, somebody like George Washington, our, our first president, who is also our wealthiest president, um, even adjusted for inflation, I'd say he was actually a little bit wealthier than Trump is, um, he got his fortune through land speculation. And also he married somebody who's really rich. But... Uh, <laughs> The main way Washington got a lot of his money was through land speculation. It's something to do. So that, that, that's, a, that's a fairly popular one. Um, others look to the future as a possible utopia. Uh, there's a fairly, you know, there's a, there's a journalist who writes this article. It's almost like Rip Van Winkle, where a guy falls asleep and he wakes up 100 years later. And, and like, the, the, you know, the cities are beautiful. There's green grassy fields. There's parks. It's this wonderful utopian landscape. That, like they, you know, but they they fix industry. It solved all society's problems. Everybody lives better than they did before. Others thought the future would be a hellish landscape. Uh, it's it's a warning. The thing that's consistent here. I'm not going to get really into the specifics about these various examples of different books and stuff. What I want you to think about is that the idea that people now believe the future was going to be different for many years, for centuries in the United States. Things didn't change that much. Remember, the way you lived was the way your parents lived, which was probably the way your grandparents lived. You know, they had a horse. They ran Tully's Taylors down there in Raceland. That's a fairly standard thing. But now, because of how much society has changed, 
people believe the future can change as well. I, I once took a great class called The History of the Future, which sounds weird, but it's this idea that for a lot of human history, they didn't think what's coming forward would be that much different than what's coming now. But the way that people view the future, the way that people view that, hey, our society and our world is going to change as time goes on, is a really new development. And a lot of the, some of this early stuff comes in this time period. It's one of the reasons why science fiction comes about as a genre. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Actually, probably in the next lecture, we'll talk a little bit about science fiction. But this idea that, you know, because of technology, because of scientific progress, it's going to greatly change the way we live our world. So the second group that has responses to some of these early fears and problems are religious leaders. Uh, religious leaders are also presenters for solution for modern life. Uh, a lot of these religious groups, a lot of these religious leaders, they are scared of the encroachment of things like alcoholism, prostitution, uh, Catholicism. Remember, a lot of these guys are Protestants, and uh, most of the new immigrants are Catholic if they're Christian, and some Protestants are uncomfortable with Catholicism. Uh, and, and mainly just a general sense of immorality. They, they see that the, that the world is changing, the United States in particular is changing, and they think it's becoming a less moral society, a, a less religious society. You know, less people are reading their Bibles and, you know, sinning. They're going out and drinking and carousing and things like that. And there's a barrage of, like, the, this is the, the great evangelical, lowercase e evangelical, uh, uppercase e evangelical is about in the 80s, but lowercase e evangelical. Uh, a lot of these movements, this is kind of the time of your big tent revival. You ever, you ever heard of that? A big tent revival. Where they'd have these traveling preachers come around to your town and they would they'd erect a tent on the outskirts of town, have tons of chairs, they'd advertise it heavily, uh, you know, basically saying, come on down, you know, we're going to be here for a week, it's a revival, you know, uh, re revive literally just means to bring back to life, so it's like, hey, you were dead because of your sin, now we're going to bring you back to the straight and narrow, bring you back to the good book, that sort of thing. They're really placing a lot of emphasis on the conversion. Um... I am not a theologian, and this is not a theology class, but I do have an interest in like how various aspects of Christianity manifested in U.S. history, and, and mainly how their theology changes in time. And, and this is this is a real time wherever like this type of Christianity places a lot of emphasis on the conversion, the idea that you know you were you were in your sin. You had a, um, you know, you hit rock bottom. You see, you see the same sort of verbiage in, in uh, something like Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous. But, you, you know, you hit rock bottom, and then you change your ways. Uh, th this particular type of Christianity places much more influence on the conversion. Does that make sense? Much more emphasis on the, you know, your turn. And that's one thing that these tent revivals do, is that they really, really, really place an emphasis upon behavior. They're saying that people's behavior is sending them to hell, not necessarily their beliefs. A lot of times they don't say too, too much about their beliefs. Uh, they're not really telling you what to believe about, like, deep theological matters. Uh, they'll, they'll say something, you know, generic platitudes, like, just read your Bible, the good book has answers. Uh, they don't, at this time, they're really more emphasis, emph uh, there's really more emphasis on behavior as opposed to beliefs, if that makes sense. Um, orthodoxy. You know, we, I think we talked about orthodoxy in one of the last class. Uh, that's not so much. They're mainly concerned about what are you doing? Are you drinking? Are you smoking? Are you going to prostitutes? Things like that. 
they're really convinced that if we can get people's behavior to change, we can also get their morality to change. They believe that fa- uh, sorry actions kind of determine people's beliefs, not the other way around. Uh, this, I mean, I'm not saying that Christianity didn't have conversions before. Uh, they did. I mean, you can read about some conversions in the Bible. But this real great emphasis upon you need to have a dramatic experience. Uh, you have things like altar calls, wherever, you know, the preacher does a big sermon and they call at you. You know, you need to come down the aisle and just have this dramatic, you know, there's wailing and, and dancing around and very, very emotional. It's a very emotional conversion appeal. Uh, probably the king of this, he's a little bit later than this time period. He's kind of the culmination of them is Billy Sunday. Oh, Billy Sunday. You'll see him right there in that slide. Uh, that is an amazing picture of Billy Sunday uh, standing on top of his desk, on top of his podium, I should say. It's not a desk, it's a podium. Uh, Billy Sunday started out in his life as a professional baseball player. He was a professional baseball player. He lived the life, you know, he was he was a professional athlete back then. I mean, professional athletes and their carousing didn't change, so... You know, he said he, you know, he slept with a lot of women. He, he did a lot of drinking, a lot of partying. But as he got older, he's like, oh, you know, I need to make a turn. I need to get a conversion. He gets religion. And he becomes like the king, the, the final king of these great tent revival pastors. Um, he's around into like World War One and stuff and actually a little bit into the 20s and 30s. But he, he has a fairly long career at this. Um, really, really emotional. I mean, you can see as he's standing on top of the desk, uh, sorry, on top of the podium, that's a very emotive thing. I mean, people would go to this, not necessarily for the conversion, but a lot of times it'd straight up just go for the show. Um, I'm really sad that we are in quarantine right now. And you know what? Maybe whenever we meet in person, I'll do this. It's something I do in all my 256s. But uh, I reenact probably Billy Sunday's best bit. And when I say best, I just say, you'll see. Um, you know, they'll put up these flyers around town. They say, hey, Billy Sunday's coming. And you know what? He's going to wrestle the devil. He's going to fight the devil. Go over one picture. You'll see uh, it's kind of drawing photograph of Billy Sunday fighting the devil. And, 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 and what you're wondering is like, okay, how does he fight the devil? And like, you know, you see all these posters like, hey, Billy Sunday, you know, Sunday night, he's going to be fighting the devil, the big ten around town. And what he'd do is he'd give this like really big, long, Speech where he's like, oh, I'm here to fight the devil because the devil's behind all the bad things going on in society. He's behind the immorality. And have an empty chair on the stage. Just an empty chair. And I I assure you, I reenact this. If this wasn't the quarantine, you know, even with the quarantine, I might reenact it. It's one of my favorite things to do every, every semester. Um, so he has this empty chair on the stage. He's like, devil, I call upon you. I call upon you, old Lucifer. I call upon you, Satan. I call upon you, old Scratch. I call upon you, Beel. He does this whole, all the, you know, Lucifer Morningstar, Beelzebub. Uh, other names for the devil that I can't think of right off the top of my head. And he, and he starts calling this for like five minutes or so, just saying every name of the devil you can think of. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh, the devil's here! And it's, it, nobody's in the chair. It's not like he has anybody dressed up as a devil. But he's like, oh, the devil is in this empty chair, and he starts calling out the devil. He's like, you know, I, I cast you out. You're behind all the alcoholism. You're behind all the sin. You're behind all the morality. You're sending people to hell. I cast you out, devil. You know, and then he gets really emotional. And then he literally starts fighting the chair. 
He starts fighting that, like, he will wrestle on the ground with a chair. And this is about the time in class when I wrestle on the ground with a chair. And it's everybody's favorite bit every semester, and everybody tells their friends, this is why you have to take Tully. Like I said, even though it is a coronavirus, I think I can wrestle the devil five feet away from y'all, so maybe we'll have a socially distanced wrestling match in class. Now, here's the thing. Like, you may not be keen on religion going to a Billy Sunday thing, but you're going to want to see the show. And you're going to remember him, because and that's that was Billy Sunday's whole shtick. He tried to be flamboyant, you know, just really, just really over the top, so people would remember him and get into it. Now, because of this, oh, other things I need to talk about real quick. Uh, another thing is there's a book called In His Steps. Um, In His Steps is a book. Uh, there's all these little pamphlets that come about, written by a man by the name of Charles Sheldon. It's a, it's a story about a little town that basically it's like it changes because everybody lived by the question, you know, what would Jesus do? Now, when you were really, really little, they had these bracelets called WWJD bracelets. Same sort of thing. What would Jesus do? But this idea that basically if we change our behavior, we could change the way we believe and the way our society runs. And that really becomes a thing is this idea of legislating morality. A lot of laws are passed trying to determine the way that people act. The logic is, if people act in a certain way that's moral, society is going to become more moral and as a whole. Uh, probably the biggest one like that is, you might I don't know if they have these in Louisiana, but uh, wet counties and dry counties, blue laws. Um, depending on where you are, it might be illegal to buy hard alcohol on a Sunday. In some counties, I know in Mississippi, where I went to undergrad, uh, there were certain counties where you couldn't buy alcohol whatsoever. They were dry counties, and the other counties were wet counties. Uh, Buying alcohol on a Sunday, you know, that's literally just about a a moral reason. The idea is, you know, we shouldn't be buying alcohol on a Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. But it's, it's, it's when you're legislating morality, they think that you need to pass laws that really have no bearing on, like, criminal behavior or how people, you know... What they do is just kind of how they act. I think blue blue codes are probably a primo example of that. Just the idea that you can only buy alcohol at certain times. Uh, this is the biggest one. There are other ones. Uh, probably the biggest organization behind this. Actually, the biggest like popular organization behind this. By popular, I mean like large. Yeah, actually, pretty popular. Was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Uh, that's a mouthful. Let's break it down. Women's. Um, women is women. Like, Ladies, gals, uh, some of y'all are women. Uh, You know, I've seen most of you in class. Y'all are ladies, so uh, you're a woman, so that's women. Uh, Christian, Christian, uh, y'all probably know what Christian is. Christian's a Christian, Jesus follower, Protestants, Catholics. I'm sure if you know about religion, you're probably Christian because it's around here. A lot of y'all are probably Catholic because it's South Louisiana. That's Christian as well. Christians as well. Catholics were the first Christians. Uh, temperance. Temperance is a fancy word for not drinking alcohol. And union is union. So put it all together, it's a union of Christian ladies who don't like alcohol. And that's their whole shtick. Their whole shtick is basically they are trying to organize, mobilize, basically use what influence they can. Uh, they pass pledges saying that they're not going to drink. As you see in that little ticket, you know, I hereby solemnly promise God willing me 
to abstain from all distilled, fermented, and malt liquors, including wine, beer, and cider, and to employ all means to discourage the use and traffic in the same. The idea that alcohol is bad for society, it's not good for your health, it ruins all your money, that sort of thing. Uh, this is definitely a woman's organization, and remember, in this time period, uh, women don't have the right to vote. This is before women get the right to vote, but one of the ways that women are able to get political power is through these moral crusades. They're like, you know, because we're ladies, it was, it was a popular belief in the time period that women had like a special bent in terms of morality. Women were more moral than men, and as such, they should guide men to be moral. Now, here's the thing. Women can't vote. How could they influence their husbands or the men in their life to vote the way that they want? Well, you can see on the left uh, something they said. Basically, lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. They're, they're telling their husbands, uh, you know, if you, if you drink, you're not going to get loving. And that, they, that was one of the methods they tried to use. Uh, you know, we, we, y'all probably giggling about that, but believe it or not, the Women's Christian Temperance Union is incredibly successful. Even before Prohibition is passed in 1918, um, America is, a lot of, huge hunks of America have gone dry. Huge hunks of America have um, gotten rid of alcohol. The, even before Prohibition, even before the 18th Amendment, you know, we have alcohol being outlawed across the country. Uh, now, another societal ill that people don't like very much is pornography. Um, photography was invented. You know, I mean, they have diagrams and stuff during the Civil War. Uh, photography is becoming more common in this time period. It's becoming more popular. It really shouldn't surprise you that once they discover the new technology of taking pictures of people, uh, they want to figure out how to do pictures of naked people. That's sadly not unusual in human society. Uh, pretty much any time a new technology comes out, they try to figure out how we can put naked people on it pretty quick. Gutenberg with books. I mean, the first book published was the Bible. The second one was like a book of erotic poetry. Uh, movies. Yeah, when we get into movies next lecture, those were pretty popular. But photography was pretty popular. And sending naked picture people... Sending people naked ah sending pictures of naked people having pictures of naked people is a popular sta- uh, pastime for folks with a, with that and one guy who doesn't like it is Anthony Comstock seen there there's Comstock he's got amazing mutton chops oh he he thinks pornography is the worst he's like a I want to say he's he's like a public crusader uh, he's based in New York he thinks that pornography is really bad. He wants to get rid of it, and the way he kind of comes about it is a very interesting way to get rid of it. Uh, has to do with the mail system. Uh, fun fact, if the federal government wants you to go away, they can usually get you on mail fraud or tax evasion, and basically that's what Comstock does. Comstock is like, hey, we need to forbid lewd materials from being sent through the mail system over between states because that can violate the Interstate Commerce Clause and that become become a federal thing. This law gets passed. It's called the Comstock Law. Basically, it outlaws use of a mail to send lewd items, lewd and pornographic items. Now, I bet you're wondering, well, Tully, okay, um, what defines pornography? 
that might be a fair point. You know, I mean, is an anatomy textbook pornographic? Because there's pictures of naked people in that. Is, like, ancient art pornographic? There's tons of naked people in, you know, ancient art, ancient paintings, you know, ancient sculptures. Uh, You know, what is and isn't pornography? And I bet you're like, huh, that is kind of a tough question. You need to have a judge. So guess who becomes the judge of what is and isn't pornographic? That's right, Andrew Comstock. Andrew Comstock is now appointed the judge. He pretty much, his days now, his days were spent, like, looking through questionable materials to determine whether or not they were pornographic and did they violate the law. Uh, Another instance of the law and mail kind of coming into this is with the lottery. A lot of anti-gambling laws were passed, uh, mainly in violation of the Interstate Commerce Clause. Uh, lotteries were not theoretically legal in this time period, mainly because lotteries were, like, crazy corrupt in this time period. Uh, the best example of this is the Louisiana Lottery, not the lottery we have now. The lottery we have now is not the Louisiana Lottery of the 1890s. That Louisiana Lottery was crazy corrupt. It was pretty much the only nationwide lottery, right? It was theoretically legal, but it's about to become very illegal. Uh, basically, the, the, the way the Louisiana lottery worked is that you bought a ticket. You basically you send a dollar to the Louisiana lottery, and they're like, you could be anywhere in the country, and then they give you your numbers, and they tell you if you won or not. Now, I bet you're wondering if uh, how that could possibly be used for illegal purposes. Really? You have to think about it? Uh, I don't know if... Can you play the lottery? I think you have, you have to be 21 or 18 to play the lottery. I think you have to be 18. I don't know. But maybe you have parents or friends or something who play the lottery. If you watch the lottery, like, broadcast, it's, like, it's on TV. There's, like, outside accounting firms to make sure it's, you know, legit. Because of this time period, the Louisiana lottery would just pick numbers at random. Except they're not at random at all. Basically, they made sure that the only people who won the lottery are employees of the lottery or friends or family of the lottery employees. And they would probably give all the money back to the Louisiana lottery in exchange for a kickback. Um, It's like me saying, hey, pay me a dollar and guess the number I'm thinking of. And, you know, you guess a number. I don't have it written down or anything. I'm like, oh, you you, you know, I picked a different number. That's that's literally what's going on here. Uh, It gets shut down because they're doing this through the mail. That violates the Interstate Commerce Clause. It has federal jurisdiction because it's the mail. Um, Don't commit crimes, y'all. Just don't commit crimes. But especially don't do anything with the mail, because if you do, it could very easily become a federal offense. But seriously, I'm not telling you to commit crimes. Don't commit crimes. For the love of God, don't commit crimes. Uh, now, another group, you know, we talked about society ills. Uh, a lot of things, emphasis, though, is upon work and labor. And the first group I want you to know about is the Knights of Labor. A lot of uh, organizations are coming to make the work world better. Uh, there's, uh, there's some disappointment about all this new world arriving, uh, there's a lot of private groups, you know, that want to make things better. Uh, but when it comes to labor, uh, and workers have a lot of problems. We talked about the factory system being very, very um, irregular. You know, you don't have a lot of job security. Uh, it can be dangerous. Wages are, are, you know, problematic. A lot of exploitation. And so unionization appears to be a fairly promising solution to their concerns, now, the Knights of Labor is the first one of these main unions. It has to begin as a secret society because labor unions were illegal during this time period. Likewise, uh, well, they, didn't, they weren't exactly illegal. They weren't legal, I should say that. They're in a gray area. And if it came out that you were in a labor union, because you had no job security, you could be fired almost instantly. 
Uh, most companies in this time period don't like the idea of labor's coming in. Now, they, they are a clear alternative to what's already available. The Knights of Labor, you know, other labor unions are going to come later, but they're like, hey, we're going to be something different. Uh, they celebrate producer values. Unlike some later labor unions, uh, there are no restrictions upon who can become a member. They allow all members, as long as you're a worker. The only people they don't allow are owners, uh, are people who don't do work. Um, you can be black, white, male, female, your ethnicity, immigrant, you know, whatever. Uh, they don't really have a specialized membership. Most later labor unions will have specialized memberships. Uh, they also really don't care if you're a skilled or unskilled worker. Uh, most labor, later labor unions want only skilled workers. They celebrate so-called producer values. Uh, we, we'll talk about this a bit more later, but the kind of the transition of America from producer to consumer-centric society is really reflected here. This is some of the backlash. They think Americans should be judged by what they make. You know, they, they believe that the true wealth of the United States comes from the people who make stuff, not the people who buy stuff, and certainly not the people who own stuff. They think that factory owners are, are taking too much of the wealth for making absolutely nothing. They, they're very wary of people who don't make stuff. So that's things like factory owners, uh, bankers. Oh, they really don't like bankers. They think bankers, you know, they make money for doing absolutely nothing. They literally only have money because they take money. Uh, they don't care too much for managers. Uh, they don't like big business. Uh, they want to figure out a way for workers to own the factory. That, that's the big thing they want. They want factories to be worker-owned. They think workers should have like a, a share in ownership. Uh, they have a lot of different ways how they say this is going to occur. Uh, nothing actually happens. Uh, nothing actually happens. They have a lot of ideas how they might do it. No solid ideas. They just want something to happen, but they don't have a particular way of getting it done. Uh, they also get directly involved in political campaigns. They want to elect people that are going to make workers' lives better. Now, what the Knights of Labor are unique about, if you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of the Knights of Labor. Uh, what they are fairly unique about is what they don't believe in. Uh, they don't believe in strikes. That's their big thing. They do not believe in strikes. Uh, at least the leadership doesn't. Some of the members are, are kind of keen on strikes. But when it comes to the leadership of the uh, Knights of Labor, they do not believe on strikes. Uh, they, the Knights of Labor rarely went on strike. Uh, their logic is, you know, we're producers. We make things. And we, we say our, 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 our station and position in society comes from the fact we make things. And if we strike, we're not making things. And we say that's what we're really about. We're really about making things. So instead, they mainly like boycotts. They mainly like, hey, a boycott allows, allows us to still make stuff, but it prevents people from buying stuff, and so that also can give us leverage with the company. It shows that we're still working and we're still willing to make stuff. Uh, it has a very, very quick rise and fall. It's only relevant for about two years. Uh, main reason it kind of fell was the not striking thing. That disillusioned a lot of workers. Uh, also, the fact that no worker-owned factories never really occur. Um, and when you say things like, you know, the worker should own the means of production, that might get people kind of scared about communism or socialism, which has never been very popular in the United States. Now, one that has a little bit, little bit more success is the Farmers Alliance. 
the Farmers Alliance is mainly be- do made up of farmers. You go over one side, you'll see their picture. It's a nice little picture of their flag. Uh, the Farmers Alliance comes about because farmers are really suffering in this time period, uh, mainly because of a decline in crop prices. Uh, the price of goods is going down, which really hurts farmers. Farmers make their money because of crops. Uh, if, you're, if, any, if you know anybody in farming, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, it's very heavily dependent upon credit. Basically, if you're a farmer, you borrow money to like get your seed and your crops and stuff, and then you hope the crops are good enough to pay all your debts and make a little bit extra so you can get a little bit ahead. Uh, with crop prices falling, with industrialization coming in, with things like uh, trains coming in, you know, being proximity to trains is super important now. But, you know, you may not want to train near your farm because it might mess with your land. But then it's it's a whole rigmarole about where you are in proximity to the train. Their world is changing. You know, the market that they once knew has completely changed. They, they see that their world is collapsing. Although farmers are generally you know thought of as very independent, uh, they're focused upon getting kind of collective help. Now, these farmers organize into a union of sorts, but it's not really a labor union. It's kind of like a collective of farmers that come together to deal with their joint problems. Uh, it's called the Farmers Alliance, and it goes from almost nothing to several million in the 1890s. Really big in Midwestern states, places like Nebraska, Texas is pretty big too. It gets very popular, uh, mainly outside of the cities. They're, they're kind of wary of people in cities. Um, a lot of people from the South and the West, not the Far West, not really California, but think of, like, Nebraska. Nebraska's a primo Farmers Alliance state. Texas is, too. And they're coming together to do things, all right? Uh, for instance, uh, they say all farmers need to collectively pool their crops together to prevent underselling. They're like, hey, if we're going to put all of our crops together, we can make sure everybody gets a fair share and nobody undercuts. It's like, imagine a bushel of corn is going for 15 cents. If you're negotiating separately, you're going to undercut each other. Because, you know, you might say, oh, we're going to do four, you know, 15 cents, but one guy may be like, hey, I want 14 cents. So all this corn's going to get bought up until somebody has 12 cents, and it kind of screws everybody over. But they say, hey, if we all decide together, we're going to, you know, collectively sell our corn so it's really big, and we can get better shipping rates, that's going to be a good thing. Uh, another thing is the co-op. Uh, some of y'all, if you're, if you're from more rural areas, you might see co-ops. Uh, co-ops are places where basically they say, hey, if we buy in bulk, we can save money. That's a very normal thing. Uh, if you've ever been to, like, Costco or Sam's Club, you know, yes, you have to be a member to go in, but you can buy, like, a million things of toilet paper. So, like, imagine right now, I'm like, all right, class, there's 60 of you. Um, you know, it, it costs, I don't know, $3 to buy 12, you know, packs of toilet paper. But if, if we go to, um, you know, if we pool all of our money together and I go to Costco, I make a big run, I can buy everybody, you know, the equivalent of 12 things of toilet paper for like a dollar. So, but we're going to have to make a huge bulk order. Uh, that's kind of how these co-ops work. Uh, they help with things like getting farm equipment, uh, mainly with seeds is the big one. Helping farmers get seeds, they buy, basically they buy in bulk, and they can buy to the co-op if they're a member. Uh, if you go to like some rural areas, you're still going to see these co-ops around. Now, these are fairly basic solutions. They're not too dramatic. Some of them are still around. It's fairly popular. Uh, some of their other, uh, other goals are more ambitious. Uh, the, probably the most ambitious is the sub-treasury. 
Uh, the sub-treasury is, it's theoretically, it's going to be a giant building, like a giant warehouse, where farmers can put their non-perishable goods and keep them until prices go up. Basically, it's a giant government-backed warehouse where you can store all your crops, and instead of selling it, stay, let it stay in the warehouse until prices go up. But the farmer can get like a credit or get cash for the amount of crops they have in there, and they could use it immediately. So basically, it helps the farmers out. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's called the sub-treasury. They theoretically want one in every county in the United States. Um, it's going to be right next to a railroad station, so it helps farmers get their goods to market. Uh, the railroads are huge for farmers. Uh, if you're not next to a railroad, you're dead because you just can't get your goods to market. And this never actually happens. Um, you can go to the country and see co-ops. You can't see sub-treasuries. They don't really exist. And these groups are getting pretty big. The Farmers Alliance in particular is a very, very large movement. Uh, things like the Knights of Labor and the Populist Party. It's not the Populist Party. Woo! The, uh, the Knights of Labor kind of get known as populists. When we say the term populist, it's kind of like a grassrootsy thing, not really appealing to um, elites, appealing to like regular folks. Uh, because there is so much clamor for the federal government to do something, the federal government's hand is forced. Pretty much the stance of the federal government, and, and actually both political parties, is kind of laissez-faire, you know, stay out of regulation, stay out of the government. Uh, when it comes to the stance of the major parties, the Democrats are fairly ingrained in the South, and in general they are more interested in protecting individual rights. Uh, they want a weak federal government. Uh, in addition, their, their electorate is pretty much white Southerners. In the North they get some immigrants and Catholics, as well as some working class people. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, they're more concerned with industry and big business, uh, using the federal government to aid business. Internal improvements have government expansion. Uh, they get a, the bulk of the northern votes, as well as African Americans who can vote. Keyword there is can. Uh, in the South, as we're going to talk about next week, uh, the right to vote for most African Americans has been disappearing. Now, as you notice, the stance of both parties is not really, you know, for federal involvement on a major level. Uh, traditionally speaking, the Democrats want the federal government to be small, you know, independent, uh, small independent people. Whereas the, the Republicans want the federal government to be involved, but for the side of big business. There's no talk of, res, of um, regulation. Now, that's changed just because it's so much. Um, in case you don't know about politicians, our elected officials in um, the United States, um, they get elected. And if they don't do things that the electorate wants, they might not get elected. And so pretty much the first actions done by the federal government was to save the jobs of, like, the Congress people. Uh, this earliest legislation was done pretty much to save jobs. Uh, the first piece of regulation in terms of business is the Interstate Commerce Clause, uh, the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Clause. It's the first government regulatory agency. It has to do with the railroads. It has to do with regulating railroad prices. Basically, they want to make sure that railroads have their rates posted. Uh, this was an issue that a lot of small farmers talked about because, I mean, it's not unusual for a company to give, like, a bulk shipping rate. Like, if, you know, if you're a big company or a large farmer, you're going to get a better shipping rate than the small farmer. Uh, they basically want to make sure that rates are posted because before this, the, the railroad would not post the rates. 
So I just want you to imagine you're a farmer. You go all the way to the railroad, and you know you have all your goods, and you find out the rate to ship it. It's more than trouble than it's worth. Um, now, thanks to basically the Interstate Commerce Clause, you can find out what the rate is going to be before you ship it. That's a thing. Like, if you're to ship anything, you, you might want to know how much it's going to be. Like, just imagine you buy something from Amazon and they don't tell you how much it's going to be until it ships. You might not want to buy it that way because you don't want to get sticker shock. Um, it also doesn't allow uh, railroads to give big companies a break. Uh, they're like, hey, you know, you can't, you can't, you can give a bulk rate, but you have to give it to everybody. You can't give a special bulk rate just to big companies. Like, you know, if a, it's basically to make sure that if a farming collective comes together, they get the same bulk rate as well. Uh, they also try to rein in monopolies. Uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act is passed, and it busts a bunch of trust. Uh, trust is just another word for a monopoly, a destructive monopoly. Uh, it can break up uh, abusive monopolies, but, but... Here's the thing. You can pass a regulation, but unless these agencies have teeth, like funding and real power, it doesn't really change anything. And pretty much, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act and the ICC, uh, they don't really do anything. They, they're very underfunded. They lose battles against the railroads left and right. It's more of a symbolic gesture than an effective um, gesture, if that makes sense. Still, there's a momentum coming. And a lot of it comes with the third party. Uh, the third party that comes about is the populist party. That's one thing we say in the United States. We've never had, like, a permanent third party that comes about. I mean, you could argue the Republican Party is a third party that came about, but I don't because it so much was anti-Whigs that came up. It was, it was sorry, not anti. There were so many Whigs that came about and made the Republican Party. Uh, th that being said, uh, the United States, unlike most other, like, democracies, hasn't really had, like, more than two parties at any given time in power. Uh, one of the chances, though, is the Populist Party. And in respect, you know, basically how this kind of comes together, who is our base of, uh, of support, who are their origins, it's mainly farmers and other kind of like ordinary folks who are upset by these just symbolic gestures. Uh, they say, hey, the, you know, the parties are just giving us lip service. They're not actually giving us teeth. Uh, their main value, no surprise, is producer value. They, they care about, you know, who makes stuff in the United States. We're the people who make stuff. Now, they have major political goals. Their political goals, number one, they want it to be a more democratic society. Uh, they want to have more direct election. They want ordinary people to have more power. A uh, primo example of this is the direct election of senators. Uh, before this time, the United States Senate, uh, U.S. senators, were not selected by popular vote. Uh, they were selected by state legislatures. The idea being that the Senate needs to be a more respectable, august body. It doesn't need to be going for the whims of the individual. However, the populists have a lot of momentum, and it actually does change. They make an amendment to the Constitution. That's, that's, a, that's the impact now. That basically U.S. senators are now directly elected by the people. I mean, for instance, this November, um, we have a presidential election. And if you want to get really technical, because I'm a democracy nerd and I do these sort of things, but if you want to get technical, if you look at the ballot, all right, if you look at the ballot, you know, whenever you cast your vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Kanye West or whoever's going to be running, if you notice, you're not actually voting for the person. I bet you're like, well, yeah, it's electoral college. 
But if you look at it, you're not even voting for the person with an electoral. You're not even voting for that person. You're voting for the electors. If you look at the ballot, I guarantee you, when November comes, and look at the ballot, if you look under Donald Trump or Joe Biden or if Kanye's on the ballot here in Louisiana, you're going to see the list of the electors you're actually voting for. You're voting for a slate of electors who represent the elect- for Louisiana in the Electoral College or wherever you're from. So theoretically, you know, we don't directly elect the president. We elect Electoral College members who in turn vote for the president. It's a convoluted thing. I mean, whatever. There are still calls to get rid of it and have direct election. Uh, for instance, if we did have direct election because Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump did, she would have won the presidency in 2016. However, because we have the Electoral College, he won the Electoral College votes because he won more states. Uh, they are successful in that, I should mention. I did. I know I went on a diatribe, a little, little whatever. Uh, the one, their, their big platform, though, the one they're not as successful with, but they really want it, the, the heart of the populist message, in addition to the sub-treasury, is free silver. Now, okay, when I say free silver, it's not like we're going to give everybody in America some silver. What it actually has to do with currency. Okay, up until right around Nixon, United States, the dollar was based on the gold standard. I want to say it was 0.1875 ounces of gold. A dollar was worth 0.1875 ounces of gold. You could theoretically exchange your dollar for gold. Uh, like you could exchange it for its weight in gold. Theoretically. Theoretically. That's why we have Fort Knox and stuff. Was you know to be the gold that backed up our US currency. Because, you know, if you get really honest about it, a dollar is nothing but fancy paper. Does it really have value? It has value because we say it has value. Uh, but the idea of having paper currency in this time period, they want to make sure it had something, had a stronger value than just, hey, this is worth something. So theoretically, in this time period, you could exchange a dollar for gold. This made dollars hard to come by because there is a finite amount of gold. The United States government would not print more dollars than it had the equivalency in gold because if you did that, it's just inflation. Now, this makes money very hard to come by. It keeps prices low. It keeps inflation in check, but it makes things very hard to pay off. This especially has to do with credit. It makes credit expensive and buying and paying things back also very expensive. This is not keen on farmers who are living and dying on credit, and a lot of them have massive debts. So what the free silver platform was, what they were suggesting, was basically make a new currency backed upon silver. You know, the old money was backed upon uh, gold, which was rare. Silver is much more plentiful than gold. They said the United States should enter a silver currency. It's going to cause inflation. It's going to flood the market with all sorts of money. Farmers are going to get more money, and they can pay off their debts. The reason why America was on the gold standard is because the rest of the world was on the gold standard. And America, no offense to America, is not an A-tier country in this time period. They're like a solid C-plus, B-minus country when it comes to strength. They're not the most powerful, and they're certainly not the wealthiest country in the world at this point period. They're going to get that way after World War II, but in this time period, they're not that place. Uh, the free silver platform really gets debated in probably the most important election you've never heard of, which is the 1896 election. But wait, we got to get there first, all right? And I, I should mention, the Populist Party does have some success, particularly on the state level. They actually carry some states in a couple electoral colleges. Now, I bet you're wondering, wait, Tully, 1896, aren't you missing a bunch of presidents? 
Yeah. All right, let's talk about the other presidential elections really quick. All right, cool. 1880, James Garfield beats William Field Scott. 84, Grover Cleveland beats James Blaine. 88, Harrison beats Cleveland again. In 92, Cleveland beats Benjamin Harrison and James Weaver. He was a populist candidate. And, okay, I should slow down. I will slow down. Talk to him about that for a little bit. Okay. Uh, Garfield. James Garfield is seen there in 1880. He wins. He is actually the only president to win the White House directly from the House. Uh, we have had presidents who are members of the House of Representatives. We've had plenty of presidents who are senators. James Garfield is the only one to be elected directly from the House of Representatives. He is a fairly standard Republican for the time period. And when I say standard Republican for the time period, um, high tariff, uh, government helping out with um, you know, big business, uh, you know, government, big business, big government helping it out, keep taxes relatively low, that sort of thing. He is also a Civil War vet. Get used to it. Most of these guys are Civil War vets. Uh, he is also from Ohio. Uh, a lot of presidents were from Ohio. You probably don't realize it, but we've had a ton of presidents from Ohio. Virginia's had the most, but Ohio is no slouch. Now, we don't know too much about what James Garfield would have done, uh, because six months into his term, he is shot by Charles Gateau. If you go over one slide, you will see James Garfield being shot by Gateau. If you go one picture, you'll see Charles Gateau. Uh, Charles Gateau is a straight-up crazy person. He is um, very disturbed in the head. Uh, he is really, 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 really bad off. Um, he's got a combination of schizophrenia and uncontrolled syphilis, which if you know anything about syphilis, it's a STD that will eventually, like, literally deteriorate your brain, like, untreated, like, it will literally kill your brain cells. Plus, he has schizophrenia. Now, Gateau believed he was responsible for um, his, uh, the victory of Garfield uh, because he wrote a pamphlet. He considered himself a loyal Republican. He wrote a little pamphlet basically saying, hey, here's why you should vote for um, you know, James Garfield. It got printed in little places. It was not a very big deal. It was just, remember, he is a, I don't use this term lightly, but he is a crazy person. So he writes this little pamphlet, he gets published a little bit, basically saying, hey, here's why we should vote for James Garfield. Garfield wins. Uh, Gateau believes that he is responsible for Garfield's victory. He's like, hey, I'm why Garfield won. Um, he starts writing a bunch of letters to Garfield saying, like, hey, how are you going to reward me? He's like, you should make me an ambassador. And he's like, you should make me ambassador to France. Now, fun fact about Gateau, he can't speak French. Uh, you should, if you want to become ambassador to France, you should probably speak French. Meanwhile, Garfield does not respond to any of this because, you know, he's a crazy person. Uh, he is shot by Gateau. He is shot by Gateau. Uh, the shot itself is not actually that bad. Uh, he actually dies later of infection. He dies of infection. There are going to be a couple presidents who are going to be assassinated coming up. Uh, their shots aren't really all that bad. They mainly die of infection in this time period. Uh, Garfield is the second president in less than 20 years to be assassinated. Um, ironically, Robert Todd Lincoln sees this assassination too. Uh, Lincoln's son is there as well. Uh, and it's also after this time period that the Secret Service starts doing more to protect the president. Uh, the Secret Service had been established by uh, Lincoln 
to mainly deal with counterfeiting. And actually, to this day, the Secret Service still does a lot of counterfeiting stuff. Uh, however, it's only after this, so the Secret Service is like, hey, maybe we should protect the president. Maybe this guy, you know, can be shot by randos. Um, like, before this time, they would literally, like, advertise the president's movements. Like, the, not just like, hey, the president's going to be going to these places. Like, hey, the president's going to go in here today. And, like, they let him go out without a guard. Like, that was shockingly common for, like, the president to just, like, take a walk around D.C. by himself. Uh, not just Garfield, but, like, a lot of different presidents would literally just, like, walk around. Like, um, uh, see, John Quincy Adams was known for skinny dipping in the Potomac. Like, by himself, just, like, swimming around naked. Uh, a lot of presidents would just, like, walk around D.C. just doing their thing, and, like, randos would come talk to him. Like, hey, Mr. President, I want to talk to you about something. And they might talk to him or not. Uh, but after Garfield is assassinated, the Secret Service is like, maybe this guy should have protection. Uh, Gateau is, um... Oh, did I mention that Gateau was like, I thought he was a preacher too? Yeah, he claimed that God told him to kill, uh, to kill Garfield. Claimed to be a preacher. Uh, when he's assassinated, sorry, when, when Gateau is executed later, I mean, of course he gets a death penalty for killing the president. Uh, his last words is a song he sang called I Am Going to the Lordy, which I will try to sing a little bit of. I am going to the Lordy, I'm so glad, I'm so glad. I am going to the Lordy, I'm so glad, I'm so glad. I can sing better than that, I'm just trying to sing bad for, as a guitar. Um, it's mainly plagiarized. He didn't even do that originally, and he dies. Um... The guy who becomes vice president after that is Chester A. Arthur. Well, he doesn't become vice president, he becomes president. He was vice president. Uh, Chester A. Arthur is a fairly nice guy. Um, everybody really likes him. Uh, he's just not in the best health. He's never a very healthy guy. Um, he's also not particularly competent. Um, he's not the best president. He's not the most effective president, but everybody likes him. He's a real friendly dude. Uh, he's another Civil War vet. Remember, most of them are. Um, he's very, very sick. He dies, like, shortly thereafter this. Like, uh, he doesn't even really try to get the 8084 nomination. Um, you know, he's another Republican. He's nicest dude. He's fairly heavy set. He's, I think he's, he's our second or third heaviest president. Uh, but he's never very healthy while he's president. Sweet dude. I've, I've never heard or read anything where anybody said anything particularly bad about Chester A. Arthur. And like, like, they never said he was a good guy, but he was a nice guy. And, like, not very competent. Very nice to get around. Uh, were he healthier, he might have been a more dynamic president. But like I said, in 1884, he doesn't really run for anything. And I should mention, during this time period, with the exception of the dude I'm about to say right now, until we get to, like, Franklin Roosevelt... Republicans kind of dominate the presidency. Like, after Lincoln... Well, okay, after Johnson, who's a Democrat, he's a problematic Democrat, uh, with a few exceptions, Cleveland and Wilson, pretty much, the presidency is very much a Republican institution. Like, we get a lot of Republicans as president in this time period. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But the next guy who comes in is one of the exceptions, Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland, as you see right there, I think he's our second heaviest president. Uh, he is known as a reformer. He's also known as a real proponent of a lot of Republican ideas. Uh, he comes in as a, like a progressive reformer, uh, very progressive, gets a lot of Republican vote over, even though he's a Democrat. 
Um, he's from New York. He's been mayor of Buffalo for a very long time. That's kind of his his as uh, his backing as mayor of Buffalo, New York. Uh, Buffalo is also in New York. There's more to New York than just New York City. In fact, Bu- New York is a larger, very large state. Um, Buffalo is kind of on the western side of New York. That's kind of his, his base. Is he starts out as mayor of Buffalo, cleans out the city. You know, even though he's a Republican, he's really big on like reforming things, which is seen as a more progressive, populist, Democrat thing. Kind of your standard reformer. He wants to change a lot of things about the country. Uh, change a lot of things, you know, bring in moral stuff, bring in things like that. However, he's got a dirty secret. He is unmarried and a, and a lifelong bachelor. Now, that's not really unheard of for a president. Like, for instance, James Buchanan, who was president before uh, Lincoln, uh, he was a lifelong bachelor. He never married, ever. Um, James Buchanan, probably our worst president. When you look at, like, list of worst presidents... Um, he's always at the bottom. Um, the reason why he's at the bottom it has nothing to do with his personal life or the fact that he was unmarried. Uh, he's just not a very good president. Civil War happened a lot of times because of him. Uh, that said, though, James Buchanan was almost certainly as gay as the time allowed. Um, he like lived with another dude, and they shared the same bed for 30 years, and they were known as like the old married couple of D.C., so he was almost certainly gay. Uh Likewise, I mean, whenever Andrew Jackson comes into the White House, he doesn't have a wife. He has his uh, niece be first lady. So the idea of somebody unmarried becoming president, you know, that's not unheard of. Uh, Cleveland says, I'm going to have my uh, sister as my first lady. Uh, Her name is Rose, Rose Cleveland. Uh, And Rose Cleveland, fun fact, uh, her correspondence has recently come out, and she is definitely a lesbian. Uh, She was certainly a lesbian at the time period. Uh, Like I said, that's just the personal lives of presidents that's not anything too scandalous for that well if it came out that's scandalous for the time period uh that's not his big scandal his big scandal is that it turns out uh while he was like in buffalo he fathered a child out of wedlock and the mom might be a prostitute and if uh is she really a prostitute no she was a young widow who, like, had a boarding house and occasionally did stuff to make ends meet. So, I guess part-time prostitute or, like, a gig economy thing? I, I don't even know. Uh, this comes out during the presidential campaign. And did they make a hilarious political cartoon out of it? Yeah, they did. Go over one slide, you'll see a infamous political cartoon of Grover Cleveland, of the infamous uh, I Want My Pa. It's basically a baby saying, I want my pa. You know, it's basically saying, hey, Grover Cleveland um, fathered a child out of wedlock. This is one of our first big presidential sex scandals. Um, This came out during the campaign. And so basically people who opposed Grover Cleveland were like, I want my pa, I want my pa. And then after Grover Cleveland won, they responded, basically Cleveland supporters responded, he's in the White House. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Uh, so that, that in of itself is an interesting bit. It's about to get even weirder. Because while he's president, while he's president, Grover Cleveland actually gets married. Uh, Grover Cleveland actually does manage to get married. Uh, he is the only president to get married in the White House, in the actual White House, like in the actual building. Uh, later on, Woodrow Wilson would remarry while he's in the, while he's president. Uh, however, it's a very small affair. 
It's uh, it's his second marriage. It's you know his wife died while he was in the White House. Here he married, you know later on. I'll talk about that more later when we get to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, however, in 1886, he does get married to Frances Folsom. Uh, you know, it's a big ceremony, big, big hullabaloo. And here's where it gets weird. Here's where it gets more than a little icky. Because Francis Folsom is 27 years his junior. Now, I bet you're wondering, okay, Telly, that's like, you know, that's not totally unheard of. I mean, you know, marrying a younger woman. I mean, I think Melania and Donald Trump are, they're probably around 20s. I mean, I want to say Ivana, uh, not Ivana, what's her name? Melania. Melania Trump, like, just turned 50, and Donald Trump's 74. 24-year age gap. That's not the most unheard of. Oh, no, 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 no. It's about to get weird. It is about to get super weird. Because Frances Folsom is not just 27 years Cleveland's junior. Uh, she's the daughter of one of his friends that he met the day of her birth. That's right. That's right. It was the daughter of one of his best friends, and he literally met her the day of her birth. In fact, he bought her her first crib. Like, like baby crib. Like, that was a gift he gave to his friend for having a baby. Uh, not only that, whenever his friend dies, he becomes like her ward. Uh, she becomes his ward. Like, kind of like, it's unofficial, but like, you know, she's fairly young. She's a teenager. And, like, you know, her parents are dead, and so he's, like, kind of looking after her. Uh, her parents were quite wealthy, you know, after her dad dies. He's like, oh, I'm going to look after you, whatever. And she comes into her inheritance whenever she turns 21. Whenever she turns 21, that's the year that she comes into her inheritance. And it just so happens that's the year that Grover Cleveland is suddenly like, oh, my God, I love you, and we should get married. And they do get married in the White House and they have a slew of children. In fact, uh, one of their kids, uh, people like the idea of babies in the White House, by the way, like, that's probably not going to happen this election cycle because both presidents or both candidates are quite old and I don't think they're going to be having babies anytime soon, but um, generally, like, if a presidential candidate has, like, young children or even the possibility that, like, there might be baby babies in the White House, generally they're going to win an election. Um... And that's usually pretty popular. Uh, one of their children, their daughter, Ruth, is super popular. In fact, they named the baby Ruth Candy Bar after her. Um, he's fairly popular. He's fairly popular. You know, he has young children. So it's a bit of a shock in 1888, whenever he loses the popular vote to Benjamin... Sorry, whenever he loses the electoral college vote to Benjamin Harrison. Remember, in the United States, what, uh, popular vote means nothing. Um, Grover Cleveland, you know, he wins a popular vote. That means nothing. Uh, Benjamin Harrison comes in. He's a Republican. Um, he's also the grandson of another president. He's the grandson of William Henry Harrison. Uh, if you remember William Henry Harrison, he's the guy who died in 30 days. Uh, he's a Republican. And he doesn't do all too much, basic Republican policies. Uh, pretty much what makes him lose his re-election in 1892 is that he's a big fan of the tariff, whereas the rest of the country is not a big fan of the tariff. And so he loses to Cleveland in 1892. Uh, it's kind of funny that uh, whenever Cleveland leaves office, and uh, after you know after he loses in 1888, his wife says, "Hey, uh, don't mess around the furniture too much. We're going to be back in four years," and she's absolutely right. Um, Grover Cleveland is our only president to be elected in non-consecutive terms. So he you know he gets win and he gets out. 
Um, the election of 1892 is important because the populists nominate James Weaver, who actually gets some electoral college votes in the western states. If you look at the electoral college map, you're going to see that you know Harrison gets electoral. Uh, sorry, Harrison loses electoral college. Cleveland gets the electoral college. But those states in green are the ones by Weaver. You know, Nevada, Idaho, Colorado, of course, Nebraska. So it's showing, hey, the Populist Party really has some weight behind it. And they're really looking for the election of 1896 to be the election where they really make a change, they really make a go at it. Because the 1890s are not that good. Uh, Things start to worsen. In 1893... There is a really bad depression. In fact, it's called the Great Depression until the Great Depression happens. It's the worst depression since uh, until the Great Depression. Unemployment skyrockets. Um, to help the populace, the government does nothing. This is a very bad depression. And remember, the federal government doesn't really do things before this time period. I mean, right now we're in the middle of a you know, kerfuffle because of the coronavirus and the economy federal government is sending out aid packages and like you know you got your checks and businesses are getting bailouts and stuff at this time period the government didn't do that and basically people get really upset and the populace get super upset about it i mean now granted the federal government they can't be too upset because there's really no precedence for it but people are demanding the federal government do action however a wealthy populist farmer by the name of coxie uh, says the government should put the unemployed to work building roads it's like hey we should like put people to work building roads. It's good for the economy. It's good for the country. People have jobs. Uh, the government doesn't really respond to this idea. So he decides to make a march from Ohio. He wants to march to Washington, D.C. from Ohio. Eventually, more people join him. Uh, they get dubbed Coxie's Army. Coxie's Army, basically this, this march of the unemployed in D.C. demanding the government give us a job. We should have a job to do something. Uh, he is arrested as soon as he gets to D.C. for trespassing on the grass of the National Mall. The federal government can come up with ways to get rid of you if they want you. Mail fraud, tax evasion, if you go to D.C. and do something they don't like, they can get you for trespassing on federal grass. Uh, however, it's not a failure in that it gets loads of publicity. That being said, though, a lot of Americans do fear socialism. And the reading y'all did, uh, when, when Gompers is talking about, you know, I'm not a socialist, I'm not a communist, I'm just a union man, you can see already there's a lot of fear of socialism and communism with the United States. Now, Grover Cleveland's response to all this is to really do nothing. He keeps the gold standard, which upsets the populace who want free silver, and he uses the military to get rid of the populist protesters. And we're going to close with this one. There are going to be two podcasts this week, but I'm going to close with this one because we're going to switch PowerPoints. Uh, with the election of 1896, the most important election you've never, never, ever, ever heard of. It's a choice election. Very few times in American history is there really a time that America is going to make a dramatic, drastic change about what our country is going to look like. What is the future of the country? There have been only a handful of times where America could really make a dramatic, drastic change. For most of its history, I would argue, and this is just Telly's argument and don't misconstrue it, that America has tended to be a fairly conservative place, lowercase c, conservative. Not Republican, not conservative like in today's political language, but conservative in that don't rock the boat. They don't really make a ton of radical changes. I'm not saying America doesn't change. It does, but it's not as dramatic as something like this French Revolution. 
It's changes that happen over time. And the real question of this election is whether America would stay the course, you know, keep up with big business, keep up with the gold standard, keep up with laissez-faire capitalism, or would they make a dramatic change? This is the election of silver standard versus gold standard. Are we really going to change? Because if America was going to make a dramatic change, this would have been the time to do it. This is the closest we ever get to dramatic, dramatic change. Now, the Republican Party nominate William McKinley. Uh, William McKinley is another guy from Ohio. Uh, he's another guy from Ohio. He is what I would call, if you, like, made a Republican in a lab, if you made a classic Republican in a lab, you would get William McKinley. William McKinley was the most, you know, big business, let government, laissez-faire, you know, do his whole shtick, government. He, he is like the ideal Republican candidate. Don't change anything. We're going to keep things the way we are. We're going to keep the way, and that's how we're going to get America back to prosperity, is by just keeping things the way we are. Like I said, he's William McKinley. He's from Ohio. Um, very, very normal, even-keeled, just the most prototypical old-school Republican of all Republicans. Now, for the Democrats, they go with a young firebrand by the name of William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan, uh, if, you, if you see the pictures, there they are, William McKinley left, William Jennings Bryan on the right. Uh, get used to William Jennings Bryan because he's about to become the Forrest Gump of this class. I assure you, William Jennings Bryan is going to turn up in this class when you least expect it. Uh, William Jennings Bryan is a bit of an unknown. He's, he's from the West. He's called the Boy Orator of the Platte. That's a place in Nebraska. Kind of an unknown. Fairly young in this time period. Uh, known as a very dynamic speaker. Uh, he gets known uh, mainly for his speech called the Cross of Gold speech. It is one of the most famous speeches in U.S. history that you've probably never heard of. If you go over one picture, you will see a political cartoon of William Jennings Bryan holding the Cross of Gold. Uh, definitely a religious metaphor. 100% a religious metaphor, like the cross refers to Jesus. Um, it's a speech he gives at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, in this time period, the Democratic National Convention are more like the old smoke-filled ro- room things, where basically you may not know who's going to be the candidate going into a convention. Um, as I'm recording this right now, the Democratic Convention was last week. Uh, today's the second-to-last day of the Republican National Convention. Uh, going into both of those, you knew exactly who was going to be the nominee. You knew for a fact Joe Biden would be the nominee for the Democrats, and that Donald Trump would be the nominee for the Republicans. In this time period, it's a little bit more flexible. So during this convention, this, this kid almost, and I say kid, he's early 40s, virtual unknown, gives a speech called the Cross of Gold. Now, I'm not going to recite the entire speech, but I will do the final line kind of in William Jennings Bryan's style. He's like, you will not press down upon labor this crown of thorns. You will not crucify America on a cross of gold. And he holds his hands out like a cross, like a crucifix pose. He's talking about how the gold standard really is messing over America's small farmers, really messing over the little guy in America. It's clearly a metaphor, and you know what? 
it seems to go over like gangbusters. The crowd is electric by it. They think it's the most amazing thing they ever heard. There are cheers like, oh my God, that's that's a metaphor. Cross of gold. It's, 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 it's a Jesus and it's like crucifying. Oh my gosh, oh. Vince gets him the nomination. He adopts the free silver platform. He's all about free silver. And he has a really religious sense about him. Uh, he is incredibly religious, like super religious. You don't see candidates like him anymore. Like he, he's speaking like a preacher. Just there's a religious fervor about it. You know, he he says he talks like an ordinary person, like he's talking like an average worker. He's not using highfalutin language. Now, what's interesting is that not only does Brian get the nomination of the Democrats, he also gets the nomination of the Populist Party. Remember the Populist Party who ran somebody before? Now they're saying we're going with the Democratic candidate. This pretty much kills the Democrat. Uh, pretty much kills the Populist Party because it's now been fully incorporated into the Democratic Party. Now there is a huge contrast in campaign styles. William McKinley has what's called his front porch campaign, where literally William McKinley spends the entirety of the campaign sitting on his front porch in Dayton, Ohio. It is staged. It's not like he's just sitting there. It's like, and this is something I would ordinarily do in person in class, but let's see if I can do these voices. It's like, oh, hello there. I'm William McKinley. I didn't see you out there on my front porch. Well, I'm going to sit on the swing and just drink some lemonade, and we'll talk about what we need to do for the country. That's my intent of a, that's my attempt at a Ohio accent, which mainly sounds like a old southern sheriff, I suppose, but that's what he did. Barely left Dayton, barely left the porch, sat on a swing, photographers would come, he'd interview, be interviewed by reporters, you know, trains could come, people would meet him, you know, like, oh, hey, well, here's people from a train coming to meet me, good to meet you, I made you get your phone, just, you come to Ohio, go to William McKinley, he does, that's his entire campaign, the front porch campaign. This is contrast by William Jennings Bryan, whistle-stop, crazy person, go to, like, three different towns a day, recite the Cross of Gold speech five times a day campaign. He's the first one to do a real whistle-stop, barn-burner, go-all-over-the-country campaign. Uh, his pace is ridiculous. He's given the Cross of Gold speech several times a day. He's like, Cross of Gold! Right, let's go to Pittsburgh. Cross of Gold! Let's go to Tampa. Cross of Gold! Okay, we're going to Texas. Like, he's doing that. And he's going all over the country. Just give this speech. And this is a real chance. Like, the country is pretty evenly divided. Uh, McKinley's followers are called the Gold Bugs because, you know, they support gold. Uh, Brian and his other people are like, hey, we should, you know, we're the free silver people, we're the populist. There's a real religious fervor. I can't iterate that enough. Like, William Jennings Bryan calls himself a champion for, like, traditional Christianity. Uh, you know, we need to change. Uh, but basically, the way he views society is that the laws of God are perfect and can't be changed. So, like, don't mess around with religion. But the laws of man are made by individuals, by man, and so they can change and they should change, and we can only get better. It's this combination we don't see too much in American politics, where it's like very religious, but also very progressive. Very much, we need to change society, bring in reforms, have the government do more regulation. Um, that's something you don't have in modern politics and modern political discourse. And I can't iterate this enough. I've been talking about this for a while. This is a chance where the United States really could make a change. 
the thing is, though, William Jennings Bryan, even though he's very popular and gets the Western vote, the farmer vote, he's never really able to convince the factory workers in the Northeast to have solidarity with him. He's never able to convince them that his whole agrarian message also speaks to them. And once this choice is made, there's really no switching off this path of being very lowercase c conservative. Uh, Very much staying the course. No real radical changes in the United States. Uh, That's going to be the way until we get to Roosevelt. Uh, uh, Sorry, Franklin Roosevelt. We're going to be talking about Teddy Roosevelt next lecture. But Franklin Roosevelt, once we get to the New Deal and, you know, the Great Depression, where actually the role of the federal government really dramatically changes. Uh, Radical action occurs. Uh, Had we gone with William Jennings Bryan, free silver would have been certainly adopted, and the country would look very different. We'd have actually had a radical change. But that's going to do it for this one. Uh, You do need to listen to the other one, though, so what I want you to do is I want you to go over to the one that says Adjustments to New Society, and we're going to talk about that. So that's Dr. Tully. I have to record another one.